guys, what's happening? This is Motion Worker. I just wanted to introduce episode 47. It's part two of the Tommy LaPuma and Matt Pearson conversation. They sat down and they spoke for three hours, so we definitely needed to split that into two parts, but it's just really full of a lot of really funny stories and just great history in general. Uh, just wanted to take a second to remind you guys, go to the website, www.comparedtowhatpodcast.com. You know what? We love doing this show, uh, and we would love to get some support in doing it. So there's a donate button there. Give a little to get a little, and we'll bring as many episodes as we can. Uh, so let's, without further ado, get on with it. Part two of Tommy LaPuma and Matt Pearson, right now. So when you left Warner Brothers, so how did that come about? You leave in Warner and then in well, back with Pratt and Electra. That was a tough story. Because uh, I thought you'd be there forever, and I remember, as you know, I, I, mean, think, I, was, I think that Mo thought so too. Yeah, and when we when we met, when I went and interviewed with you to be your assistant at that point. I was just a, an A and R guy at Blue Note, and we met, and I was dying to go work at Warner, and I just assumed you'd be there forever. What happened was I had been there for Jesus. 18 years? 18 years. I, I mm-hmm. went there in 1974. This was 1990. And with the exception of that little period, that year where I went to uh, yeah, Eliza, yeah. I was there. And I remember, you know, I went into, oh, I said, look, you know, I'm going to try to make this as good as I can. I said, no, look, I, I've been here a long time. And I, look, man, he treated me great. It treats everybody great. Oh, yeah. It's, just, oh, yeah. it's a very, you know, it's like a very relaxed atmosphere in which to do what you do. Right. But Mo could be, you know, he's a tough negotiator and a tough deal maker. Mm-hmm. I did a little homework and I said, hey, uh, turns out the girl, the, maybe you knew her, Fern Cranston. Well, of course. Yeah. Well, uh, Fern and I worked together at Liberty Records back in 1961. Oh, so we knew each other well. So I went to Fern, I said, Fern, and they were just starting to come out with computer readouts mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. whatever it was. I said, is there a way for you to go back and just give me an idea as to how many records I've sold? in my water years, because I'm going back in to negotiate. Mm-hmm. I just thought it would be curious to know. So you weren't well, getting any kind of like royalty statement? Well, yeah, but I wasn't keeping track of it. So uh, she said, well, you know, you can give me a little bit. And obviously by that point was Dave and Bob and Dave, and then obviously all the Benson and the Michael Franks and the Randy Crawford. Crawford. Well, I, I knew exactly how many. It's yeah. what happened when she came down. Just look on your wall at that ten, point. Ten days later, uh, Fern called me and said, you know, you want to come down? I mean, I got a thing. So I come down and she's got this, it was th- about this thick. Right. One of those printouts, you know? Yeah. So it turns out I had sold, including if I, because in those days when you had double albums, a double album was like 16, mm-hmm, 17 mm-hmm. bucks, you know? So it was almost like double album, including the double albums. I sold about 35 million records. <laughs> so I went in to see Mo and I said, look, Mo, I'm, you know, I've got, obviously, I'll have Abe, Abe Summer was my lawyer at the time. I said, I'll have Abe, Abe calling, I don't, I don't want to negotiate my own deal. I just want you to get a sense as to, you know, I've been here for 18 years. I think I've been a loyal employee and I just got this thing, you know, I had asked for her if she would make this up. I said, I've, you know, the last 17, 18 years, I've sold 35 million records. He said, get out of here. I said, hey man, here it is, you know, I, this is for you. Yeah. Look at it. <laughs> so I said, I just want you to keep this in mind. Mm-hmm. So about a month later, I get a call. I was in the studio working, and I was supposed to have dinner that night with Chris. I get a call from my lawyer. He said, you're sitting down? And he said, uh, he's going to give you a $10,000 raise. <laughs> I, could, I was like, couldn't believe it. Oh and I was just fucking nuts, you know? And I had to go back, and I was in the middle of working. About an hour later, the phone rings, Kras, and he's saying, because he just wanted to know where we were going to meet. Mm-hmm. 
So and I sound terrible. And he said, man, he said, you sound terrible. I said, Bob, I said, I'm so pissed off right now in my that if I had a place to go, I'd fucking leave right now. And he said, you got a place to go. <laughs> I said, you serious? He said, man, if I wasn't serious, I wouldn't say it. So he ended up, I mean, as it turns out, I ended up the beneficiary of, I think, Bob playing the competitive game with Mo. Mm -hmm. and, and as it turns out, as a team, we were great. Yeah. You know? He filled one part of the mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. process, and I filled the other. And, All right. You know, the first thing we did was Natalie, yeah, you know, yeah, so... Yeah. So there wasn't a case where you were able to go because of loyalty and because it's Mo and all that. Well, as it turns out. To go out, back and say, hey, listen, I got this other opportunity. No, no, <clears> I was so pissed off. Yeah, I just said, it was he had already. Because, yeah. I mean, obviously, that yeah. Warner culture and our love for Mo yeah. and that whole team and that vibe. Listen, we're still, look, I just saw Mo two months ago. I was out there. I mean, we're, we're as close as ever. Yeah. It was just this moment where what it was, was. I and think, Murray was probably in his ear. Murray, <laughs> probably. And I think that Mo. <laughs> I think he just probably figured, and I don't think it was like some underhanded thing no. or not any of that. I think he just figured, where's he going to go? Yeah. Where, 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 is he, where else is he going to go and get this kind of a atmosphere and a deal mm -hmm. like, like this? Where yeah. else is he going to go? I don't think he counted on that wild card. You know, that, Even that, though he had probably, within a month before that, he probably was sitting at a table with Kraz and like Amit and, and Doug and everyone. Probably didn't put two and two together and say, "Oh, that's right." Ma, I don't. Well, and, well, as it well, turns out, no, because he knew. Look, my lawyer was on uh, on the phone with Bob the next day, and the day after that, he flew my lawyer in at his cost, and we had breakfast at the Carlisle, and the deal was done. Mm. So within a week, so when they heard I was leaving, and, and as it turns out, my contract was up in a month. Right, so right. Like February, and it was May. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, Lenny went, no, what are you, what are you crying? I can't believe you're doing it. I said, hey, Len, look, you know, the guy gave me twice the amount of money I'm making, gave me an additional point, to, you know, or am I crazy? Yeah, like, no, that's... But I hadn't spoken to Mo yet. So we <laughs> finally connected. I won't forget, because, you know, he was very close with Steve Ross. Oh, yeah. But he didn't throw that up in my face, though he, what he said was, I can't allow this to happen. Mo said that. Yeah. I can't allow this to happen, because he was, like, coming off... The riff of, well, you know, you can't steal an employee from, you know, yeah, yeah. but I, there was nothing in writing of that. So my contract was up. It wasn't like he came after me. And so in any event, when he said there was always an unwritten rule, because I dealt with that when there was an artist who was leaving Atlantic and I was going to sign mm -hmm. Rick Bronk and I got a call from Val Azzoli. Who the fuck do you think you are taking my artist? I'm like, he's out of contract. You know, we're in the same company. I'm going to call Russ Dyrett. Like, what the fuck? He's out of his contract. Oh, yeah, exactly. No, there's like this it's thing in the, in the family. Slaves, you know? Yeah, it was like this thing in the family. It's like, well, don't mess with the family. Speaking of you looking for the slaves, so he said, I can't allow this. And I said, Mo, I said, is this the plantation? You can't allow this. I said, I'm, I'm out of my contract, you know? So I felt badly. I mean, you know, I got on a plane and I went out to see him. And I just said, look, Mo, we've been together too long. I've got a lot to thank you for. But, you know, I think it's time I got to make the change. Mm -hmm. And he was fine. Mm -hmm. That was it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, now, one thing I want to get into, which is that whole Warner culture, which I was, of course, after you had left and I was able to get an opportunity to go work there and um, <coughs> inherit this incredible roster that you had left behind. But at the same time, the industry was in a big transition where a lot of those artists who had deals based on them making gold mm -hmm. records and having all those right. successes you know, no longer were able to sell that much. And part of it, frankly, to the fact you weren't there to make the records with them. But it was still 
Warner Brothers record. And that culture, when I had first gone into those A&R meetings, and it was Teddy Templeman and Ross and Lenny and Karen Berg, who was a huge mentor to me, and yeah. of course you were yeah. very close to Karen, and Richard Perry and David Gamson and Rob Cavallo, who ended up running the company, and just all these people who knew how to make records. Yeah. And we'd sit in an A&R meeting, and you'd play demos from a new artist, or I'm not sure what to do with Rod Stewart next. And you'd sit here as a team of creative people and talk about songs and talk about producers and talk about passion for the artist and yeah. talk about storytelling. And I remember when I got there, all I knew before that point was working with Bruce at Blue Note which is a small operation which in, within a major company. And my exposure at that point, I learned from Bruce and Michael Cascuna, which was all about the artist and all about making records. But I wasn't used to sitting in a room with a bunch of people who all know music. And I was like, oh, this is the record business. This is what it's like. And then within a year, and I got to know a lot of people out of the label, so I thought, no, it's not. <laughs> this yeah. is the only place where you sit in a room with people who actually know how to make records. And this and, was, to tell you the truth, I think that this was Lenny's manner of bringing everybody together. Yeah, and that thing about, you know, bringing someone creative and let them do what they do. And not, you know, that was the thing, one of the great things about Mo as a manager yeah. was he would grab the right people and say, this is your thing, do your thing. Absolutely. But then if they started to stretch beyond it, he kind of let it work itself out. It was like such a family. So there were certain people who, you know, it didn't work with. For most of us, especially in the NR level, it wasn't like, you're the jazz guy. Although I was the jazz guy, yeah. you know, there were a lot of times, I never, I spent as much time with Teddy Templeman as anyone. Because every time I went to L.A., we'd, I'd sit in his office for three hours. He'd be talking about jazz, and I'd be talking about pop, and we'd get into the yep. TV Brothers, and then I'd play into the demos. There was demos, a big mutual respect was, between everyone. You yeah. Know, the only time ever in the 18 years I was there that Mo ever had a negative take on someone I was thinking of signing was I was in New York at the time. I had heard this album that Dr. John had done while I was present with Mac. I had done a couple of albums with Mac already mm -hmm. at Horizon. And we kept in touch and everything. And somebody, oh, I'll tell you who it was. It was Bob, the publicity guy at uh, Merlis. Bob Merlis played me a record because he knew I was on fan. Mm -hmm. And it was a record called Dr. John Plays Mac Ravenac. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was, a so, it was just a solo piano record of him doing standards. Mm -hmm. And all the time I've known this cat, I never knew that he had any sense of standards or mm -hmm. how to do standards. And when I heard, I don't remember what tune it was, I thought, God damn, this guy can really, he understands what a song is all about, mm -hmm. and how to give it a treatment. So I called him and I said, hey man, I got this idea, I want to do a standards album. He was, I had this idea to do something with Ricky Lee. And mm -hmm. It was in the sentimental <clears throat> album. Yeah, of course. So, you, as you remember, since you worked there, those Monday lunches, you know, with the... Korea. With the, well, it was that, you know, the second floor, the, the, the conference the room. Yeah, they call it Korea. It was, oh, was the Korea. Yeah, the senior exec meeting. With the, yeah, with, the, oh, with that fucking terrible deli food from yeah, the exactly. or something. <laughs> yeah. People talk about the football game the night before and all that shit. And then at one point, he'd get down to business and he'd go around the room. Mm -hmm. So he gets to me and he said, Tommy, what's, you know, what's going on? I said, well, I said, I, I'm just in the process of signing, uh, uh, you know, Dr. John. He says, oh, yeah. He said, what label is it going to be on? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, ha -ha, you know, we laughed at everything. But that was it. I mean, he didn't say, I don't want you to sign him. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not sure whether you should sign him. Nothing. That was all I had ever heard. I went ahead, of course, and did what right. I was going to do. And it turned out to, you know, it was a, it oh, yeah. won a Grammy. And so it was great. Yeah. But other than that, that would, I'd see, because Mo knew... He knew what he could do, and he knew what he didn't know how to do. Right. But he got someone right. 
who knew how to do that he couldn't do. It's funny, I gotta tell you a little quick story. One of my first Korea meetings, because what I ended up doing was, I was based in New York, but I found out that I really needed to be out at that senior exec meeting as much as I could. And I went out and we had just done Dubop for Miles. And we had to determine, this was all right after all of the body count, cop killer and all that stuff. And Warner was out of business from Interscope and all that, and it was very, very sticky about hip-hop and lyrics and stuff. Well, we had that record, you know, and there were a couple of raps on it. And Fantasy, Easy Moby had written this one rap. And we had to decide as a company if everyone was comfortable with it. So I had the lyric written out. And we're sitting around that table, and what's the lyric? And I said, well, here's it. And I gave it to Mo. And Mo recited the lyric in Korea. And the lyric, which was, Watch out for licks for my big fat stick. My stick is real thick, call me Easy Mo Bick. Uh, but this stick ain't whatever, and I forget the rest of it. So Mo read that out loud at the meeting. So it was one of the greatest moments. But, but yeah, it was like my very first meeting there. But yeah. No, it was, it was an amazing thing at that company. And, and of course. I think it only happened once. Yeah, That's and it. having been there for the dozen years I was there, I mean, I watched the walls kind of fall around because Mo and Lenny had hired me, and when finally all that shit went down with Morgado and and Doug Morris's coup and all of that, Mo left and Lenny was going to stay and be the president, and then Lenny left and they brought in Danny Goldberg. One of the first things Danny did was he, God bless him, he promoted me to run in the jazz division out of New York. And then right around then he got rid of Benny Medina. But then little by little, Russ um, Titleman and Roberta and people started to fall by the wayside yeah. Yeah. with that company. And Thyrette was fantastic, was always very supportive, but there were just things would happen and he'd have to deal with the politics of it. So then David Kahn, who was brought in as part of Reprise, he became kind of the A&R guy and then he didn't like certain people. And so all of a sudden, these A&R meetings shifted from sitting around a table talking about music with people who know, know how to make records to some young kid coming in. This is this hot band everyone's talking about. And this was someone who didn't know how to make a record and was a musician. This is someone who had been a manager or a promotion guy. Right. And so all of what A&R was no longer was about dealing with artists and repertoire. Repertoire, forget it. You know, and certainly about artistry, no. It was promotion and marketing again. It was all about what is everyone hot about, what's going to work in the market, and can we sell this product? And as I've said when I got in there, what I learned quickly from Mo, which was so brilliant that I still stuck to, and maybe it hurt me in not being able to stick around there, but there was a point where there were artists I wanted to sign, and I'd always want to go to Mo. He'd let me sign what I wanted to just so it wasn't stupid financially. He'd support me and trust me, but I'd go to him to get Dad's approval. You know? <laughs> and so I'd go to him with something and say, hey, I'm really excited about this. this. is the greatest. I really want to do this. And we had already by that point had had Joshua Redman and Brad Meldow. And, and then on the commercial side, we had trimmed the things that weren't making business sense. And it was heartbreaking to see Michael Franks and Randy and Benson and Jabro to see those people go. But as you know, I mean, with the deals that were in place for those guys yeah. and, you know, guys like Earl Clue who... You can only make that record a certain number of times. Yeah, exactly. You know, and finally, I'm trying to run a responsible business, and I was feeling like on the commercial side to be able to get Rick Braun and Kirk Whalem and Norman Brown and guys who were newer in the next generation, but guys that I felt were going to have long-term careers, not short-term commercial pop guys, and to build the straight heads out of the roster up. Because when I got there, Whitfield was all that was there at that point. Was the last guy I saw. Yeah, yeah. and he was he was the one guy there that would be perceived as a straight-ahead guy. Right. We had our conflict because he didn't want to be a straight-ahead guy, but, um, or just a straight-ahead guy. But anyway, that was the thing with Mo. It was like, 
yeah, if you do your pitch on it, it's like, well, do you really believe in this artist? Do you have a passion for this? You clearly do. I go, yeah, yeah. Well, then you sign him. Exactly. Oh, cool. Thanks. Okay, now, about the deal. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what numbers are we talking about here? And And he was so... Quick about oh, it. And, and there's there's this formula that doesn't exist that if you have instincts you kind of have in your head, which is that whole what is your vision for the potential audience for this act and what's that going to mean to the company both short and long term? Mm-hmm. How do you balance it out? And it really comes down to the same way you analyze like I'm doing baseball. It's like when you look at analyzing baseball players. Is it a short term career with high risk that might have quick payoff, or is it a long-term career where the artist is young and has a big upside and a low injury risk. And it's the same thing with artists. And he just had this thing where he'd ask you three or four quick questions and you'd say the deal and you go, that's going to work. Yeah. Or, mm, don't do too firm. Yeah. And somehow we'd always be right. But it would always start with the music. Music, decision about the passion for the artist because he knew no matter how successful an artist might be, if you as the A&R guy couldn't walk in there and have a major hard on for this act that he trusted that you could translate to the rest of that company, then it was a waste, no matter how much business sense it could make. We're talking about artists, and we had a, not an argument, but kind of a back and forth thing, because I was a purist to a certain extent. I wouldn't want to sign an artist just to make money. You know, I really had to believe in it. I signed Bowie James, who I really believed in musically, and I thought he was, of any of those commercial sized guys, he, he really had something that was distinctive. I found him to be an individual. He was an artist. But at one point, we're having this discussion about artistic credibility and all this. He goes, well, I don't know, would, would you sign Kenny G? Kenny G's available. Would you, be, would you be interested in Kenny G? And I said, well, it all depends on what the deal would be. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'd have to balance art and commerce on that one and really determine. Because the other piece of it, which, you know, and this is nothing against Kenny G specifically, but that issue of the quality of a label and the quality of a roster and are you watering down the image of the roster in a way that could potentially hurt you down the road with the artists you want to attract? Now, when I did a handful of those smooth jazz guys, and then I signed Athene, I mean, when I got close to Pat and was developing our relationship, we weren't talking about, you know, we talked about Kirk Whalen, we loved Kirk, and he respected Norman Brown. But we were talking about Brad and Kenny Garrett and Joshua Redmond. And he loved those guys, and he accepted that we were in the smooth jazz business, world. Yeah, yeah. And he knew that was part of the business, but I was walking on thin ice with some of the people yeah. in the music community. And I think I think that, like, in you know, and like with all due respect to his success and all that, I think that Kenny was probably right. That that's the dividing line in a sense. It's like uh, it's just funny because I what's his name? Uh, Kenny's manager, and he, he called me the minute he heard I had signed George Benson. Mm-hmm. He called me, and he had just gone to work. For Ken Fritz. What happened was they signed Kenny G. The guy called me and he said, Hey, would you like to produce Kenny G? Now, at the time. For Arista. Yeah, I'd only heard him playing tenor. I hadn't heard him play soprano. What happened was I used him. I was doing this thing with Jennifer Holiday. I needed a tenor solo. And it was George Benson. Josie said, Hey, man, have you heard of this guy, Kenny G, man? He said, Hey, he's a bad player. You ought to try him. Hmm. So I remember I walked in to, 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 to the studio with this thing, and I had a bleach sheet. I went out there, and I said, Kenny, I said, look, man. I said, Boris, 30 feminine, but just give, give him the, the rundown. And uh, he very politely and with a lot of finesse basically told me that he didn't know how to read. Oh. He said, well, he said look, he's just playing play to the track. He said, no, no. And he ended up doing a decent tenor solo on this thing. Yeah. You know? 
But I don't know what, for whatever reason it was, I just, when he called me and asked if I'd be interested in doing it, this is before they had done an album. Mm. So it was the first album, which I think sold about five million, yeah. six million, whatever it was. Well, he made three records before Duo Dumps. He made like uh -huh. G4s. On Arista? Yeah. Oh, really? He made, I think it was three records, and then Duotones of Breakthrough was the fourth one, you know. Wow. And then the next couple were that, huge. He had done that many. Yeah, and the first couple were, sounded kind of Jeff Lorber. They were a little more... Was he playing soprano deep. by that time? Yeah, he was uh -huh. playing, he was, and when I saw him with Lorber, he played soprano. But yeah. I mean, the funny thing, though, you say that's the line. Yeah. Whether or not you're going to cross that line. Yeah. You know. He's really the, the line crosser. There, <laughs> about who, you know, what is that going to mean to you? What are people going to perceive... It's funny, I, I got in trouble once. I was on one of those panels at a jazz convention thing, right amid the massive Kenny G discussion. Part of it was Matheny had done this online thing, because Kenny G had just done the duo with, uh, with Louis Armstrong. Posthumous, What a Wonderful World. And that really set a lot of people off. I, I got a story on oh, Go ahead. Well, finish, finish yours is probably better than mine, so let me do the yeah. first one first. Yeah. So, so he, well, but what happened was, after hearing that, and after, you know, I was close with Pat, and we talked about it and all that, and there was a letter in the New York Times, and I wrote a letter back and all this stuff. Because when he first heard Kenny, Lorber was opening up for Matheny, and it was a concert I was at up in Michigan. And I remember Kenny G playing, and it really stuck with me, like, oh, I don't know about that. Because, you know, it was kind of out of tune, and it was all the same pentatonic shit that didn't always fit the change, and he was circular breathing, and it was, this isn't really music. This is kind of a circus in a way. Yeah, yeah. But he's going over, so what's with that? So and eventually, when I really listened to it, I stuck up for Kenny G. I remember I was on one of these panels, and I said, you know what? Kenny G is an excellent improviser. He is a great improviser. In fact, he's one of the great improvisers of his time. And they're like, oh, what the f oh, what are you talking about? You know, and it was like all these radio people and AR people. I said, listen, let me ask you something. What is improvisation? It's telling your story and connecting with an audience. And if you genuinely tell your story from the heart, it's truly your own wordless story, yeah. and it connects with a lot of people on a deep emotional level to the point that they're gonna spend their money and want you in their lives, you're excellent at what you do. Yeah. You're a great improviser. Whether you like it or whether you don't like whether it. he's a great improviser to you and you're gonna buy his record or not isn't the point. We're in the music business. We're in the industry where we have to say, we need to make an emotional connection with an audience. We as the jazz community at that point, it didn't do us any good to say, Kenny G sucks, fuck Kenny G. What does us some good is to say, why is that happening? You yeah. had instrumental hits, now what does that tell you? Now, potentially it tells you that the audience are idiots. The pop audience was getting watered down and was interested in mm -hmm. buying it like it was Montavani for the New Age or whatever, but at the same time, I think we need to give it up to him for making a connection. Yeah, there's no question. Making the connection, I think, was, was is, is the, the the best part. But the, yeah. and I'm not even sure if this is the best example. But as I think about it, uh, Mitch Miller had this. It was more than a moment. Oh yeah. At Columbia, where he would take all these great artists and do these stupid fucking songs with them. You know. But the one that comes to my mind immediately is Rosemary Clooney, who's to me one of the great vocalists. Oh, you know, everything from Come Out of My House to uh, Bacha You, Bacha mm -hmm. Me, and all exactly. that shit. <laughs> you know, and it's like, you think, God, what a fucking waste because, man, she could sing. I mean, when I first heard her, I remember doing all that shit, you know, mm -hmm. and saw it, whatever. But he was always looking for the novelty, the thing, you know. And uh, But I can remember getting back to the Kenny G, uh, Louis Armstrong thing. I got a call from Bruce Resnikoff. And uh, he was in, uh, not a dilemma, he was in somewhat of a dilemma. I guess he wanted to get some input. He said, I got a call from Kenny G's people, and they want to license uh, the Louis Armstrong for a duet. Mm -hmm. And this is when you were a This is what a wonderful world, yeah. I said, Bruce, 
just out of curiosity, man, what does this copyright make a year? Mm. He came up with some outrageous figure. You mean the, the master rights? No, no, there's the master rights, whatever. They may have owned the publishing. I'm not sure if it was all-inclusive publishing. Or well, but just the master rights to What a Wonderful World, as much as that had been licensed yeah. to film and television. And it was it was up there. It was like 300000 a year, four, yeah. 500000 a year. Yeah. You know, and I remember when he told me the figure, and I said, man, I said, you know, you're making... This thing is like gold. It's like, you know, this thing, and it's going to be around. So with that, why the fuck do you really need this? Is it important that for whatever it is that you're going to make? whatever well, in, in-house in accounting, let's say it's going to be eight cents per album on a Kenny G record. Yeah. You know, and Kenny G sells a million records. It's 80 grand. Yeah, big fucking deal. So it's like, and you think to yourself, okay, well, what does that mean to the copyright and to the... And Retention the, of the quality of that The work. quality of that thing, you know. I think we come from a different place where, I mean, to them, it's strictly dollars and cents. Mm -hmm. They're looking and saying, well, what the fuck am I going to do? I've been looking at 80, 100 grand in the face. Am I going to turn that down? Or am I going to, you know, take it? So I'll take yeah. it. Fuck it, you know. <laughs> but, you know, if it was me, I wouldn't have done it. Not necessarily the best business move to make. Well, when you talk about the dollars and cents and what we were talking about earlier about A&R decisions, that vision, it's not just this quarter or this year. How much money is this going to make for you? You have to analyze it yeah. and say, but wait a minute. Over time, what's the negative effect of this yeah. on that copyright? Because you ain't going to take that away. In other words, at this point, who knows who remembers that that was on that album? Yeah, but you can't but, ring that bell. But like, you want to talk about the present time and something like this? The thing that I, to me, it's even it's worse than this Kenny G Wonderful World thing, and that's the album that came out on Verve <laughs> with Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow. Yeah, that to me was just like an absolute. That was a whores move. You know, just think to myself and say, first of all, why would you take, with all due respect to whatever it is these guys are making and how successful or whatever it is, why would you take a label? And here, let's even go back one step prior to that, uh, David Foster. As it turns out, David Foster is probably one of the most talented, a great musician, man, as, as a comper mm. when it comes to pop music and making those kind of records. Nobody does it better. What a brilliant. Arrangement. You know, it's it's like it, it, yeah. and and but if that's his. Well, he's the ultimate arranger or producer of that yeah. of that schmaltz thing oh. of that place. Nobody does it better. Okay, so I could understand wanting to make a deal with him, but why do you have to give him Verve? You know, you could have called it your mama, whatever you wanted to call that label. Just in other words, David Foster's a bigger brand than Verve in the right, Verve right, industry. Right. Yeah. So in other words, you take David, say, David, let's come up with, with with with. But it was almost like they looked at it as a brand, but they had no. I mean, as I think about it, I was thinking, okay, so it is a brand, but why you took that brand, you gave it to this person who doesn't do anything that even relates closely to what mm -hmm. the history of that label was about, mm -hmm. and then you start putting out all this trash, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, did you see that? That uh, that guy was spot on, to tell you the truth. Did you see that thing that was in the uh, on online with the, like a tombstone? With oh yeah, 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 oh, sure. oh yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that guy was basically right on. Yeah. You know, well, I, mean, they, I, mean, I think he was a little naive and thinking about what they could have done with the label and where he was going. I think, well, look, you know, he doesn't know the record business. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. the point is, everything else he said was absolutely on the money. Well, you know, that, I mean, that issue in itself. I'll tell you that one of the most ironic things that happened, whether it's ironic or my having a sense of wanting to shoot myself in the foot, but right when that happened, and I'm on Facebook a lot and I do a mm -hmm. lot of commenting, and maybe I'd go farther than I should because I like to talk and I like to get discussions going. So I've had a lot of discussion on my page about Spotify and a lot of things about certain artists I hear that I'm excited mm -hmm. about, and you talk about Flying Lotus or 
Kendrick Lamar and other artists that we get excited about that are real music people and say, oh, thank God this is successful. Anyway, right when that happened and I heard that Barry Manilow, whatever this is going to call it, you know, it's like, oh my God, what's happening? And it's on Verve and everyone's heated up about it and oh my God, this is terrible. And um, I posted on my Facebook page something about it. And I was careful and I was like, more was like, what do you think of this? And kind of getting a discussion going, but in the thread, you know, I definitely <laughs> made some comments about it. Mainly, you know, and of course I didn't go as far as Guy Eckstein and some other people went about protecting the name brand of Verve. My concern about it wasn't even so much about Verve, you know, because at this point, to the consumer, a label brand doesn't really mean anything to a consumer. But to the people, it does mean something too. When you have an asset that you have control of, and you have the Blue Note brand, or you have the Verve brand, or you have the Prestige brand, which is one of the great brands that's mm -hmm. never been touched by Concord. I tell them to their face that they're idiots for not rebuilding the Prestige brand. What a perfect label. They got all this straight-ahead yeah, jazz on exactly. Concord, and they put a Concord label on it. Fucking use, just stick the Prestige name on it. Yeah. Watch what happens. What a great fucking label. But anyway, this Verve thing was all discussion. So I said some stuff, and so... Of course, I knew this. The next day, I was flying to L.A., and I had a meeting with Jay Landers. And I had talked to Jay a couple times over the years, and, you know, as an independent producer, I'm looking for work. And it's like my managers had set up this meeting. Oh, when you're in L.A., meet with Jay Landers. He's interested in meeting with you. And I knew David when I was at Warner. We were in a lot of the senior executive meetings together. Mm -hmm. And I always had great respect for David. But, you know... Um, Absolutely. And, yeah. and we had a couple of really great discussions. I remember when we, we went to lunch once, and I caught him off guard because he said... Well, what's your favorite David Foster production? He oh, says to me in the, in the third person. And I said, it's probably Wild Women of Wongo. <laughs> he goes, what? I go, yeah, well, from the two inside, outside the tubes. It's one of the great Jerry Hay charts of all time. And that Wild, Wild Women of Wongo. And he goes, hmm. Yeah, most people say hard habit to break or, you know, whatever. That's a surprise. After that's funny, he never really gave me that much love after that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I go into this meeting with Jay Landers, and it's a really great meeting. We hit it off really well. I know, and I respect Jay for what he does. We hit it off. It's like, oh, great, maybe some projects we can work together on. I'm going, cool, okay. And then uh, later that day, I'm waiting, and the phone rings, and it's Jay Landers. Hey, I, know, I just want to let you know, I brought up your name in the office, and I said, you know, to the team here, Hey, I just had this great meeting with Matt Pearson. I'd like to get him involved in some stuff here. And they said, oh, we were just talking about him. Look at this that he said on Facebook. <laughs> and Mike Rittberg, the marketing guy there, like that same day that I had the meeting with Jay, they're talking about this big thing that's going on about this record where everyone's going off on Verve, saying, oh, my God, what the fuck is this? What the fuck is this? And here's Matt Pearson on his Facebook page saying something about it. He's like, so it's pretty funny you bring up Matt's name because look what he's saying about your record. So when Jay called me, he's like, so I just heard about this thing on Facebook. And I think he's going to write me a new one or say, who the hell do you think you are? And of course, I'm going, what was I thinking? The day before I have a meeting with a guy, I didn't make the connection that he oversaw the record, which is kind of, you know, but that was his baby. But he was so nice on the phone. He's like, oh, listen, man, we're getting a lot of heat for this, but let me tell you the story behind the record. And he says, you know, this is what happened with Barry, and this is this, and... Barry went to these people and the states all signed off on it and it was all very clean and he was all of that. And finally, after he gave me the whole story, I said, yeah, but it's on Verve. Did you guys not maybe think that it'd be fine to put it out on Universal? Like, what does it matter if it's on the Verve label? Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. what value does that have? Perhaps Did you not do a cost-benefit analysis right, right, right. in terms of the perception of a record on Verve Records coming out of 
bury Manilow cavorting with the dead. Don't you see that's horrible? That, that, you know, and he goes, well, here's the point. Corporate said to us, anything we do has to be on the Verve label. And from a corporate standpoint, all of our things have this imprint. And he kind of went into the way they're set up business-wise. And it was right at that point they were shifting them over to be under Interscope. Mm -hmm. And he basically said, we didn't have an option. We have to put Verve on anything we do. And we made a business decision and we had to do this record. We're, See, we're trying to stay in business, he said. And the fact is that that record was in profit the day it came out. See, but the thing is, everybody this is like they always jump when you get into into, into conversations or, or or you know, tater tays with people about this. Mm -hmm. They immediately go to the profit. Well, mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. it was profitable. Well, it would have been profitable on, on Universal. Exactly. The it's a question whether or not it makes sense on that label. In other words, you have a brand here that it took 50, 60 years mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to build, and it's got. I mean, look, man, when Edgar made that deal with Polygram and we got Verve, mm -hmm. I already knew that we were going to call it the Verve Music Group mm -hmm. because I knew that Verve meant something mm -hmm. and all due respect to what, you know, GRP was doing. And if you notice also, what went on Verve and what went on GRP, including George Benson, mm -hmm. went on GRP. Didn't, well, you know, George you know, the, the stupid thing about it, you, you've got two factors here, and it's like when I bring up prestige. You've got the Verve legacy, and you've got the caretaking legacy. When we were at your place talking about painting, yeah. and you say, I'm just a caretaker of this. Yeah. You know, this isn't something I own. I'm just taking care of this for a while. And that's what we are when we work with the label. And when we believe in that label, when I was at Blue Note and Warner Brothers and I believed in those imprints and you had the Verve imprint, this is something we're caretakers for. So the value of that imprint and respect for the legacy of that imprint is extremely important because there are those that value that. You don't think of the flip side. The flip side doesn't matter. When people say, oh, I never heard of Verve Record, what's that mean? Yeah. I'm not thinking about you. The you people, don't matter to me. It's the, the people, people who mean something to The too. people that bought that very <clears throat> Manilow record, it could have been on, yeah. you could have called the label anything. It wouldn't have mattered because they, they call it Tombstone Records. Tombstone You could have bought the record. You could call it anything you want because all, it, all they cared about was if they were to but, buy it, they were buying Barry Manilow. Yeah, but, they didn't care about But it. the other piece of the Verve thing, when you guys took it over and what was so clear about it, even if you don't know what the label is, what a great fucking name for a label. Yeah. Verve Records. Well, fucking fantastic at that. Yeah. And then you take, you know, the history. So if you don't know the history, it's still a great name for a label. And part of it, I think maybe part of it to them is like, oh, well, we own this. we got to put a label on this. But again, the, the short-sightedness of looking at whether it's going to be profitable or not. One of the things about Lundvall, when he got Blue Note, mm -hmm. and then he started Manhattan Records. Because it was like, I'm going to do some stuff that's not jazz. Huh. I've got this to do Manhattan. When I got there, we had Bob McFerrin and Diane Reeves, and then I was involved with Rochelle Farrell. And all three of those artists, what was a great selling point to them was they could do straight ahead records and it'd go on Blue Note. And if they did a crossover record, it'd go on Manhattan. Right. And so that way, you'd be telling the consumer who knows the brand right. what kind of record it is. And you could retain the quality and the brand of what the one brand is and help establish exactly. the other brand. Oh, yeah. And that was such a given mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in the business that I had come out of. Whereas... Today, they don't think for a minute that making a move like that is going to hurt the brand or I don't even know if they care. You know, it's like, it's so, it's so rough. It's like, see, the other thing I think that, that is, is lacking today is that guys like Mo, if they respected what someone did, they let them do what they do, didn't question them until they hung themselves. Like, okay, do what you're going to do and you're either going to make it 
Mm-hmm. Or and if not, if not, you know, you, you won't be here next year. That's all. It's that, that simple. Mm-hmm. So and that brings up. I mean, there's a million things to talk about and stuff. But one thing that I wanted to get into discussing the state of the business and all of that stuff. Well, you bring up about A and R, and this is one of those tricky areas that I think we probably come into the same place about. It's a very tricky issue about A and R and about artistic direction and about artistic control. And there's this thing about the way that certain people bruise and in some cases mow perhaps. You sign an artist you believe in, you let them do what they do, they're the ones who make the records and then you figure out how to find a market for it. And the role of A&R, which is basically, and it varies from artist to artist and executive to executive and label to label, but you're there to identify talent, acquire the talent, make a deal with the talent, whatever, develop a strong trust and relationship with that talent. And then see to it that they realize their vision in a way that your company, who's paying you, can then generate revenue with it by making a connection with an audience, with something that's mm-hmm. real, correct? So that's ideally what it is that the A&R person does. Whether that's someone that's eight gigs A&R, if in the case with Convert for You at that point, you're running the label and you have A&R appropriate people working with you, at the end of the day, your job is that piece of it. But that transition, that point where you're working with an artist and you have to give them direction, and whether it's, here's some songs for you to do, here's some ideas for you to work with, here's a producer you might work with, here's some new music that's happening maybe you should check out. At what point do you know, for you and your experience, how far to go with that discussion and whether or not to get involved, get critical, get confrontational in some cases with an artist mm-hmm. about whether they're realizing a vision that you think is going to connect with an audience? Do you feel it's okay and that it's your responsibility as an A&R, when you've been an A&R person or the producer, mm-hmm. to get involved in some of those sticky areas? Or do you like to feel more, it's their call, their name's on the cover, let them do their thing? I, I like... And how do you walk that line? I, I actually, I, and I've, I've been in this position quite a few times, and I think the only thing you can really do, I would always approach it this way. I'd say, look, this is your record, this is your money, so the bottom line is, whatever you ultimately end up wanting to do, it's, it's, it's ultimately your decision. And that's, I, I, I honestly believe this. But I must be candid with you. And this is what I think. Now, whatever you want to do from that point is your decision because, as far as I'm concerned, you're spending your money in the long run, at least that, at this, this was the time when most of these artists I'm talking about like this were making their money back mm-hmm. and whether or not they want to waste it or whether it's their whether it's the company's money or they're that's being loaned to the artist right. and they might right. never get it back whatever the case is right. it is their money so it's, the, it's their it's money their and, yeah. and so okay so whatever you want to do it's your decision but I would only feel I have to let you know what my feelings are mm-hmm. and I would just leave it at that now I found that one being candid with them Two, giving them something that they can uh, digest mm-hmm. that most of the time, not always, but most of the time, they would ultimately end up coming up with what, you know, the most, uh, the best way to deal with this is. And that, like, maybe something that they were thinking about was either far-fetched or was, mm-hmm. you know, didn't really make sense. <clears throat> uh, you know, one of the things I think you have to make sure of when, when you're a producer is you have to, um, you have to save your chips Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you have to know when to use them, when to mm-hmm. pull them out, when not to, you know, but you have to be honest. you got to be, you, you can't play along with their game. Because I think also what happens is that you ultimately end up getting bit in the ass anyway, because 
you know, even if you end up agreeing with them and everything, at one point they're going to say, well, what the fuck is this guy? You know, I mean, nothing's <laughs> happening here. You're going to end up losing the game anyway. Yeah, yeah. So it's best to just, you got to be straight and let them know what you think, and then the rest of it is up to them. Mm -hmm. And at least you're, you're going to be able to, do, same thing with do, doing takes. I'm always looking for that moment of magic. I'm always looking for that moment where I can feel it. You know, in other words, I, I can feel it. I just, it emotionally gets me... Grabs well, you always say it gets your ass shaking. It gets my ass shaking. Right? <laughs> yeah. And that was funny how that came out. It was just, that was like just a fucking <laughs> thing that came off the top of my head when somebody said, you know, well, how do you know when it's, you know, first of all, you ask a question, how do you know? <laughs> I don't know. So, so that's why I said, well, you know, when your ass starts shaking, it's, you know. But in a sense, there was some truth in it. That like, you know, first of all, you've been rehearsing this thing for God knows all. You know the tune, you know everything about it, and you know when it's either not happening, when the band's not happening, or when this is happening. And there's that moment. Now, I'm not saying that you can't possibly better it. So what I usually do is when I get to that point, and I'll say, man, that's, that, that's brilliant. That track is happening. And they'll say, oh, man, no, I don't know. I want to take one more. I, you know, I just think, I think maybe I, gotta, I could get a better mm -hmm. angle on what to do with it. I think I don't <clears> like the way I did the bridge. Whatever it is they come up with. And I'll always say, okay, hey, great, man. Quick, let's do it. You know, and then at one point, I'll say, look, man, we've done two, we've done three, we've done one, we've done four, mm -hmm. whatever it is. I said, let's just go back and listen to that take. Mm -hmm. And then we'll go back and we'll listen to the take. You know, it's a blessing in a sense is that I'll never forget when I hear something that hits me where I could feel it, I won't forget it. Mm -hmm. And I'll even though I'll always say, well, God damn, boy, yeah, we, we mm -hmm. just bettered that one. Mm -hmm. Not often does that happen. Mm -hmm. But then when I get to that point, and I know they're not quite totally convinced, and I'll say, listen, man, look, you, you don't like what you did in the bridge? Man, this is the reason that we've got isolation. This is the reason we've got all mm -hmm. these things, so that you've got the ability to go back in and redo. But it's like you're going back, and you want to do the whole tune. Okay, so then you get it, and you may get what you want, like, here, but everything else doesn't mm -hmm. feel right, you know? Okay, now maybe we could edit that piece in. And put it in there. There are all these elements, but the feel, whatever it is that got me, is there, you know. But see, when you say that, see, part of the, and this is back for the specific situation as a producer in the studio that we deal with, or if you're in a NR person, there is that element of your time with Puma, and this person trusts you. It's the relationship built on trust, a trust that they respect you and they know your knowledge and they want to work with you and what you're bringing to the table and they're gonna, there's gonna be honesty and there's gonna be trust. You're gonna hold on to your chips, whether it's being critical or whether it's playing a card and saying, look, and we really gotta move on, or I know you wanna work with your guitar player, but listen, this oh, yeah. guy. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, oh, no, no, a lot no, of those chips you gotta play, a lot of, those, a lot of it has see, to do with mutual respect. Here's the interesting thing about what you're just saying right now, is that, that like, when you're working with an artist, it's like, oh no, somebody will ask you the question, what do you actually, as a producer, what is it you do? Well, man, that's like asking, you know, uh, how many stars there are in the universe. It's like, <laughs> I can't tell somebody what it is I do, because whatever it is that I do happens at the moment that it's happening. There isn't a formula here. I mean, there may be a formula in the way I go about coming up with songs. Not even a formula, but, you know. A process. A, a process. Yeah, yeah. That's a better, exactly. It's a process. It's, it's like, it's, it goes from moment to moment, second to second. It's like you hear something, you react to it. That boom. But that's that's what it's all about. It's not about, you know, or, and that process goes on all the way to when you put the final touch on the mastering and, and suddenly it's out of your hands. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. like you don't stop. 
You know, I, I, I'm, I'm constantly changing things. Oh, yeah. oh, God damn, wait a minute. It just, just occurred to me. If I, let, let's see what else we have in here. But that d d may not hit me the first time yeah. I heard it, the second time or the third time. But it may be the fourth or fifth time I hear yeah. it that I'll say, wait a minute, this is, yeah. you know. But those things are like instances that happen at the moment that it comes to you. And the most important thing that you can have as a producer is that you react to the moment. You will react to whatever. If something comes to your head, even if it ends up coming out when you verbally say it, it's stupid. It's like you got to mm -hmm. come out with it. Yeah. Because that is the moment of, let's say, creativity or whatever it is you want to call it. When something hits you, I've learned, if nothing else, that I trust my instincts. Mm -hmm. They're not always right, but I find that a majority of the time, mm -hmm. and that's what I'm getting paid for. That's why I'm doing well, you're this. Paid for your taste and, and, your not, and not yeah. brain surgery. You know, if you don't trust your instincts, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. do something else. But it's one of the funny things. It's like people try to define what it is that the producer does, and it's funny. And I and I look at we've both done a whole variety of different kinds of recordings. Okay. So, like, if I look at a Brad Meldow trio record, well, what was a producer on that record? There's nothing to do. I said, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and of course, the journey starts at one place and it ends at another place. And if you don't have a navigator who has taste, and it could be just a case of you continually being there as support for the artist, and in some right. cases, being another set of ears to say, it's time to go on. Or it's time to say, are you sure we need a bass solo on this too? Yeah, right. It could be that. And then all the other logistical things, thousands of decisions you might make, whether it's, you know, a lot of the technical factors that we can get into about microphones and sight lines and headphones and when you order food and all that, to the pre-production about who's the band and what are the arrangements and what are the tunes and all of that, to afterwards how you can edit and mix and all that stuff. Every record's completely see, different. Yeah, and see, editing, this album I'm just, uh, I'm, that I'm in the process of doing with Dominic. We're in there and we're, we're putting this thing together and, and Larry, Larry Golding said something like, well, hey, why doesn't Dean take a solo and then I'll take a solo and then there's Dominic taking a solo. But instead of me saying and messing with the vibe in the room, saying, no, I think we should only have one solo. Or no, I think it should only be Dominic. I just let it go. I know mm -hmm. already, but, and then sometimes I'll go, God damn, that's really good. I don't think I'm going to change anything. Mm -hmm. But other times I'll go, well, you know, we should edit and it should mm -hmm. only be Dominic or it should only be yeah. Larry and Don, or whatever. But I, you can't, the flow is very important so that you don't mess with anybody's feelings. When you're in that room, that's so raw. Everything is so raw, Fun. you know? And you just have to be so careful about how you maneuver yourself through this maze like, you know, Joe, Joe Savile, who I love dearly, you know, Joe had no sense of, you know, like we had this, I don't want to mention days, but we had this guitar player, it was a fucking great guitar player. And as it turns out, this artist is absolutely brutal with guitar players and drummers. Mm. Brutal. And, you know, so I recommended this guitar player and I could tell, but I said, oh shit, this is the wrong call. Wrong call. And at one point, about 20 minutes into it, after he had gone through a couple of things where I knew that we were on the way to trouble, you know, Joe stopped and said, man, you're fucking with my groove. <laughs> well, you know, at that point, you call it, you know, yeah. it's just like, you know, like, so I, you know, basically at, at the end of the date, I just book it. I said, look, man, I'm sorry, you know, but this ain't gonna work out. Yeah. I, you know, I want to pay you for the week, whatever it is. Yeah. Because, you know, what are you gonna do at that point? And whether or not, maybe that was the best thing the Joe could have done, because I don't think it would have changed, mm -hmm. and we could have wasted a whole fucking week, you know? Yeah. At least this way, I pulled out the element exactly. that was fucking with his groove. <clears throat> right. 
And at that point, I had made a decision. I said, hey, man, you got to go on. And then I learned a great lesson from that because at that point, anytime the next two or three albums that we did, I never had guitar. Yeah, 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 yeah. I never had guitar because well, I said, the piano guitar why? thing can be very tricky. Well, yeah, yeah, like either it works or it doesn't work. Yeah. You know, like it's, now with, with Joe, it's funny because like when we were doing Ashes to Ashes, I'd been working with Ricky Peterson. Mm-hmm. And I said, man, I think Ricky would be great on this. Well, look, I was taking a chance because these cats didn't know one another. And Ricky's like this, you know, Nordic dude from Minneapolis. And, the, yeah. you know, but the first thing he played, boom. And with Joe, it's either you're fucking with my groove or you don't hear. You know it's fine when he doesn't say a word. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He didn't say a word. We just kept going and it was great. Yeah. You know, that's really the deal. Yeah, I often equate, I mean, I'm a huge fan of film. You know, I'm into film the way you're into art. Right? Yeah. But I'm a huge film fan. And in fact, I feel as inspired or, or influenced by filmmakers and directors. Because I think as a producer, you're more the director. Of absolutely, the process, absolutely. So, you know, my favorite directors have influenced me as much as certain producers. I mean, obviously, Creed's work and your work and, you know, Steely Dan records and Joni and a lot of that's been Stevie is influential. But the great thing about looking at film is there are really four elements to a film in order. It's script, casting, shooting, and editing, basically. At least the way I look at it. Yep. And making a record is the exact same thing. And, and you, you know, it's start funny. with the script, which are one of the tunes and the charts. Yeah, exactly. And all the casting, casting. who are the players and the original, all that. that. Exactly. Who's the engineer? What's the setting? This is exactly. it's shooting. It's doc- how do you document the shit? Because the raw materials are not going to change. Yeah. You only get what you document. I agree. And then that. what do you leave out? And yeah. the editing piece, which is so important, because what's there that isn't needed to direct the listener's ear towards the story, yeah. towards connecting emotionally with this artist and this story? And it may be only a question of two bars. There's something on the Dominic record where, you know, there's a four-bar intro. And when I was talking to Gil, we were talking about what we were going to do with it, uh, Gil Goldstein. And I said, you know, Matt, and it, it was a, the tempo was like one, two, three. For, to get through four bars of an intro at that <laughs> tempo, you know, it's like you could really not fall asleep, but you, you know, have you, a bite. You could be on, you know, have a bite or go to Mars, you know. <laughs> so then I said to Gil, I said, look, man, I got a feeling that we can either do with two bars of this four bar solo, or we could just go right in. You could write an intro. I said, but at the same time, if you write something that's interesting enough to fill that four bars, the four bars will go by like this. So I said, let's leave it in. Let's see what you come up with, man. Mm-hmm. And either, you know, it's going to be something that's going to work mm-hmm. and we'll use it. Yeah. Or we won't. And that's the other thing, too. It's like when you're producers, you got mm-hmm. all these options and you got to just... But each of those decisions about options have a before and after factor that you always have to take into consideration. Meaning that beforehand, the decision about who's in the room will feed whether that choice will be a good choice because you know, based on your experience in relationships, whether they're capable of doing what it is you envision. Mm-hmm. And then after the fact... You need to know whether, if we do this, and it is too long, can I edit it? Yeah. Harmonically, right. is this well, a piece where it's the, same, you, you the same thing repeated, or is it not something I can edit? You, you, you got to be thinking is there, about is there a, a crescendo through these bars that yeah. if I want to cut it in half, I can't? You, you can't, right. So you right. have to think about all those oh, things. You're, you're, exactly, and, as you're doing it. Right, yeah. right. And, and, and at the end, all those decisions are going to feed who's the artist and what stories you tell them. Yeah, and if, if if it's not going to feed that, then what the hell are you doing? It's, it's fascinating. You know, one of the things that I got so inspired by your work and Creed's work and some of the Quincy records and certainly Steely Dan to the highest regard has to do with that. It's like, what's the story? 
And what's the cast to tell that story? Do, do you know what? Some I'll never forget. It was a music critic. He was a friend of Zach's, of Zach Horowitz's. When I first started, and I was doing a Dr. John a big band record. I was one of the first records I did on Blue Thumb. Mm -hmm. It was really a good record too. Big band record, but it was, mm -hmm. it was really great. And I'll never forget. <laughs> Zach came to the date as we were doing the date, and he brought this music critic with him. They were friends. You know, he's there for the good two hours or whatever it was. And then when I was mixing, after I'd gone through the whole process, mm -hmm. Zach came to the mixing date, mm -hmm. and he brought this guy. And I never forget the music critic said, uh, "Wow, this doesn't sound anything like what it was I heard when, when I came to the dates." Mm -hmm. And I don't know where it came from, and I just said, "Well, that's the trick. <laughs> you know, the trick is forget about what you." Say. Why should you know? Because you weren't involved with the whole process. Yeah. But the trick is that you get from there to here. And you it's one of those reasons why I remember I was recently I did a record where the inaugurator from, from the label came to the session, and it was a tracking date. And at the end of the session, he was like, "Say, hey, I want to, I want to walk, I want some roughs." And I go, "I'm sorry, I can't do that." But listen, as soon as I have something, I'll get it to you. And it became a huge conflict between us. I didn't give him the roughs, but I'm like, not only is it we haven't realized our vision, but these artists have performed things that they trust me to clean them up. Right? They trust me to put it in a format that's going to tell the story and capture the magic and edit and leave in only the magic or add other magic that makes their magic magic right. when it wasn't magic before, like all that process. And the other thing is that you can't unring the bell in terms of the listener. For someone to hear a rough mix or someone to hear something incomplete, it really fucks with their head. It's that story about, you know, that every time with a record, I'm sure you have the same experience, where the most important person to have fresh ears is the artist. Thankfully, I've been able to work with artists that trust me like vocal artists where I can do all the vocal editing and comping and that. Because if the artist is there for a lot of that process and an artist is there for the entire mix process, they've seen how the sausage is made. So they can't forget that they've seen this progress. Well, you so know, they see every bit as it went together and says, hey, wait, wait, trust me to get it ready. Now, with that, what you just said, it reminds me of when I worked with Paul, with uh, McCartney. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we got along and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I knew that, look, we were both... <laughs> the sense testing, <laughs> testing, not even testing, but just okay. Feeling each other. Where's out. he going to take? Feeling each other out. What's going to? Okay, but I'll never forget. I knew the minute that we finally had a take on something. The first thing we did was cheek to cheek, mm -hmm. and it didn't. It wasn't happening. And but, but on that note, very important, I think, when you start making an album, is that you really have to think hard about what's the first tune you're going to do. Mm -hmm. Because the first tune you're going to do will set the atmosphere, will set the whole mood of what's going to happen. So it's very important that you think about, okay, what's the first tune I'm going to do? In the case of the thing I did with Dominic Farinacci, the first thing I did was black coffee because it was just a straight ahead... Just to, you Let know, everyone get to know each other and know their own comfort. Yeah. And then, you know, and we ended up with a great take. <clears throat> Everybody felt comfortable. So then you could start challenging at that point. Okay, with Paul, what ended up happening was the first thing that we did that, that I, I really thought, because the second I said, man, and I, I wouldn't have started with cheek to cheek. But then I said, hey, let's try it, but more I cannot wish you, which was just from Guys and Dolls. Mm -hmm. And it came out. It was a great take, anyway. So then I said, Paul, do, do me a favor. Let's do some uh, some vocals while we're here and we're in that set. Exactly. That set. Just give me, I don't know, man. Let's do two, two, three, whatever it is. Let me see how many I need. <laughs> so usually it would be like three or four. I would just have them go from beginning to end mm -hmm. and just perform two, three, four times. And then I'd say, I think I got enough goods here. Exactly. So I'd say, okay, man, do me a favor. Give me a half hour, whatever it's going to, 40 minutes. And I put together a combine. Yeah. I, I put a vocal together. Mm -hmm. And then I called him in and I played it for him. 
And I could just tell his reaction from that point on, I was cool. You know, that's it. Yeah. All you got to do is trust. just like, whatever yeah. it is you do, you know, if an artist gets a sense that you know what you're doing or that he likes what it is mm-hmm. that you're doing, then mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about anything at that point. You have rough times, bad times, you know, good times, whatever it is. At least, you know, at that point, they know that you've got a sense yeah. as to, to what it is you're doing. One of the big factors, obviously, these days is when you're dealing with tighter budgets and certain, you only have so much time and all of that, there's not always the freedom. I'm restricted by the process itself. It's not an option to spend all this time in the studio doing all this work. It's like, we're going to get what we can in the short time we have now. You're going to have to trust us. But the great thing with working the way we work now in Pro Tools and everything, it's like, you can undo anything. Right. You can always go back. Absolutely. Yeah, right. But once an artist feels that, oh, then it's not permanent, I'm going to trust you. Let's see what you can do, because I know it's not forever. But if they're away from it, and then they hear something that's fresh, like what happened with Paul, then the trust is there. Look, here's the other thing with this whole deal. And is, is I know it's a big issue with people, and that's tuning. Mm-hmm. And I can remember I went through this with a very well-known artist, and it was like, no, no, tune it. What are you talking about? Tune? <laughs> I said, well, look, it's one thing to, one, have auto-tune. You know, I just don't believe in auto-tune. That's one. Meaning you don't believe in locking it in Just place. lock it. Just like, no. Nothing in no, automatic. But my thing is, if you got this great take, and then there are just a few places where, and it's not a question of how they performed it, the approach, the performance, and whatever. It's just the fact that it may be a little sharp or maybe a little flat. Okay, to go in there and just tweak that one thing so that instead of it being sharp or flat, or whatever, boom, it's on. So it's no different than making a film. You know, you don't know how many edits were made. You have no idea what's what, what process they went through. The beginning could have been done at the end. The end could have been done at the beginning. It doesn't matter. When you see the finished thing, the whole thing is, is when you hear the finished product, as long as it sounds natural. Mm-hmm. Look, Ben, you and I both know when something's going to sound like it's been fucked with or if it hasn't. If it sounds natural, who the fuck knows or cares or anything? No. All it is is it's right. It's either right or it isn't You're right. You're in a recording studio. I mean, that's right. the, the, the funny thing about pitch is, I mean, I'm a, I'm a realistic fan. Oh, me, okay? me too, man. I can't and stand as a, here. As a, having been a lead trumpet player and like I'm real hardcore about pitch. Yeah. But I, I also feel that when things are in tune, shit locks. It feels better, yeah. everything else better. But yeah. but the trick about it is the challenge you've got is this perception of what tuning is in the studio, thanks to all of the auto-tune stuff and pop music. But the fact is that if you're in the studio and you can mess with panning, you can mess with reverb, you can mess with levels, you can edit, yeah. you can tune. It's all the same. It's all the same. What do I do with a recording to get rid of something that's, like my test is, if my ear is drawn to it for the wrong reason, right. I get rid of it. Right, right. It's not make it all so it's perfect. Same whether it's you... pocket, whether it's pitch, whether it's a wrong note, yeah. whether it's, you know, a percussion hit that's in a hole that you thought was going to yeah. work, but you take it out and it just feels better. Like, all those choices are musical choices, first and foremost. They're not technical or mathematical choices. They're musical, passionate, emotional choices. And the same deal goes for when you're sweetening. Mm-hmm. My feeling is, is that when you're sweetening, anything that distracts from the performance, whether it's a vocal or an instrumental performance, anything that distracts from the performance doesn't belong in there. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter, you know, how, how much the artist may like it, how much the arranger may like it, whatever it is, the, the main attraction is always right out there in front. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll drive out, not sometimes, because I'll say, look, there's part of a word that I can't hear. I'll say, well, no, we've got to go back. Because I want to hear it. I want to hear the word. Remember, and I can't hear a burr. You know? And then when you sit back and you can hear it, I go, yeah, okay, I heard it. 
And it's got to be right out there in front. Okay, so then when you start putting things around it, the minute that you start hearing the arranger is writing for himself and not for what the artist is doing, forget it, man. Out. Everything goes back to the story, the script. Yeah. Everything goes back to what is the story that's going to be told, and every single thing that's added to that has to be there to serve that story being told by that artist. That's what's most yeah. important. Speaking of the story, man, when it comes to songs, that's what it's, you know, they'll say, well, how do you pick a song? It's all about telling stories. And if the story is not either somewhere emotionally, that it emotionally gets to you, or it's just so, you just go, wow, I, you know, whether I ever thought about that before or did think about it before, mm-hmm. there it is. And it's, I hear somebody else saying it. Mm-hmm. A song has to have that kind of attraction mm-hmm. to you. You've got to feel that the person is telling you a story. It's like a lot of times you'll hear, uh, now this is probably a fucking wrong movie here, but a guy who I think is just one of the great singers today. Mm-hmm. I heard him on record. I saw him in person. The guy's got fucking great chops. Gregory Porter. Mm-hmm. Love him. <laughs> I'm still waiting to hear a song of his that like, really, <laughs> you know, I still, it's like, and, and why? Because... I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. It's like, you know, if I don't understand, it's like I want to... And I'm thinking to myself, well, this guy could be a monster. It's not a question of, you could be a monster if you wrote better songs. And you just say, well, okay, look. And I'm not saying that you can't have a song on the album or whatever if you, if you write songs. Well, but, but see, that's... it's you See, the thing... With, and you can, we can talk about Gregory. That's fine. I mean, Gregory's one of the great singers oh, on the planet. Absolutely. As an artist, as a singer, he's incredible. You have to just find material that's right for him. Now, yeah. if you're a writer, obviously you're going to be more precious about the stories that you've told. And you can sit there and argue sure. until right. everyone dies around you saying, yeah, but I wrote this story, therefore it's my story, so you're wrong and I'm right, because who are you to tell me what my story is? And you right. can say, yeah, but have you heard I Never Dreamed You'd Leave in Summer by Stevie Wonder? If you sing that song, that would sound like you wrote it. It would sound like you dreamt it and woke up and wrote it down next well, to your bed. Well, this is the big... If you want to know the truth, you, you think about Diana Krall. Diana Krall's other fact is she's got great time and she has a style. You know, mm-hmm. style is so... There isn't that much style out there. I mean, there, there are certain acts mm-hmm. and they got style. <laughs> what I mean by style is that, like, the minute you hear, you hear one bar, somebody is like, hey, that's so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's style. Okay, but when she takes something, I'll never forget when we were doing the, the, the album that we did with Mandel, When I Look in Your Eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we spent three days at my house in, up in the Connecticut. We listened to Sinatra for like three straight days. And it was great. I mean, it was like, what better way of working than? We just sat there and listened <laughs> to Sinatra for three days. It was fantastic. But okay, so then at one point she said she wanted to do I've Got You Under My Skin. And I said, I said, look, that's great. Doing that. You know, there's certain songs that, like, it's got a moniker on it, you know, like Georgia with Ray Charles. It's it. like they own it, right? You have to own a song, and if someone else owns it, you yeah. can't own it. Okay. <laughs> but this is where trust comes in. There's a mutual trust comes in. She said, I'd like to take a shot at it. I, I really, I love this song. I think I'd like to take it. Hey, go ahead. But I obviously had to tell you what I think. My name is guy mm-hmm. owned this song. All right. So she did it. She fucking came up with a way of doing it. And then when we got in and did it, it came out with sort of like a slow bossa nova feel. And what she did was she sold a song based on the way she did it. And this is the whole key behind her success mm-hmm. is that she could take these songs and make them hers. Mm-hmm. That's the fucking deal. Well, it's that cliche about she could sing the phone book or whatever. I mean, but this is, you know, she's one of those and she has such a strong identifiable sound. The key is, is it a story I believe her telling? 
and she believed it enough to say uh, ab- absolutely yeah and look i god i made uh, 10 or 11 albums with her the only time we only almost got into a, a, a thing was uh, on the record that she did uh, girl in the other room where mm-hmm, she wrote mm-hmm. uh with others. Uh, um, well, majority, not the majority. Yeah, she wrote a majority of the tunes. Mm-hmm. And my feeling was, because everybody said, oh, what's she doing? why is she doing this? And, hey, man, look, this girl had done, by that time, six albums, seven mm-hmm. albums. She had sold six, seven million albums. Because mm-hmm. uh, The Look of Love alone sold uh, four million albums. Mm-hmm. And I, it could be five now. I'm talking worldwide numbers. But anyway, uh, hey, look, you get an artist, gets to a point where they're selling six, seven million albums, and they want to write something. You can't oh, say, course, no, you can't. You shouldn't do that. You can't do that. It's crazy. you got to fucking let them do it. Okay, so we went through the whole thing. How's it turns out, you know, she wrote this with Elvis, and Elvis is really a great lyric writer. And there are a lot of these tunes that I like. Girl in the Other Room, I like. There's several things that really, I thought, these are solid songs. Whether you like them, you don't like them, they were solid songs. And when we got to the end, where we were going back and forth on each other, was that I tried to convince her that, look, you did this, this is great. My feeling is, these three, or these four, <laughs> those are great. And the problem is, is that artists tend to, uh, there's a uh, precious point you get where these things are very precious to them, understandably so. But you have to have this objectiveness where, you know, no matter how you how partial you are to the artist or whatever, you have to look at this and say, when you put this whole thing together, does it all hang together? Mm-hmm. Or would it be better if we took these three out and we did some other things in, yeah. in place of that? Okay, so you lose some, you <clears throat> win some, but you got to pick yeah. your battles. Well, they, and, and listen, as it turns out, hey man, that album worldwide sold two million. So it's not like, you know, it was a fucking failure. Yeah, but in, in this is me having not been in the part of the process, mm-hmm. and this is in hindsight, but... Part of the trick that that story brings up, the factor of artists who are known for non-original material, for covers and standards, who are mm-hmm. known for immediate understanding of the story you're going to tell them, and they tell it to you in a way that you've never heard it told before. Mm-hmm. That's what she was. That's what Nat Cole was. That was, you know, Ally and any great singer. That's what Diana was known for. And the moment comes where she wants to write, that trick is, how do you make sure that those songs that she actually wrote stand up next to her rewriting songs that we thought no one else could have done before, yet mm-hmm. she was able to bring a new light to it. See, there's something that's more, there's more elevation in a way to the idea of, oh my God, you just sang a Nat Cole song that I never thought I could hear again, and you brought something new to it? That's more incredible yeah. than a piece of original material in many ways. Yeah. So when you then say, I'm going to write original material, the trick is, for me, when looking at that record, I'm going, I agree, I'm like, pick three or four. Pick the four great originals that yeah. are the greatest songs you've ever had anything to do yeah, with. Right. And the other eight, put them in the for a minute. Right. You know, they're not going anywhere. Let's pick those four and then let's surround you with other material that we know will elevate your shit. Yeah. That next to your stuff will make it shine. And then everyone hears it and goes, oh my God, did she write that? Should she not write that? It's one of the things I think that Dave got right with Buble. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. how do you pepper in the original material and make it fit with mm-hmm. the covers? That people well, as it turns, it's very interesting because it turns out to me, I thought Home was, was a good song. Yeah. I, I, oh, yeah. I, you know, so whether or not, and God, God knows what went on in there where he just said, hey, this is a great one. Yeah. I don't want, let's not do this yeah. one, whatever. But he picked the right one. Yeah, home. I mean, I don't know what happened with it, but what I feel is that the way that it was presented to the public and the way that it established him a more effectively as a songwriter. Yeah. Because the only thing we ever heard him write was a great song. It was a great song, <laughs> you know? exactly. And, and, that, and, and, that's, uh, and when you look at what hypothetically could happen with a Diana or a similar artist where 
all of a sudden there are three originals. Then once that record does what it does, your options next are great. Maybe the next one's all originals, and it's got a few of the ones that you didn't do on the other one, and you've got a few new ones that were inspired by the ones that were successful on the last. Well, you know, it's like a record I just did with Dominic Farinacci, and he wrote a few things. He wrote a tango piece that's very nice. He wrote two things, and he had actually walked in with three or four. One in particular was something he had written for his mother. We talked about, about how you get into sensitive areas, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. And his mother had been ill, and he wrote this not just for her, but about the experience that they went through with mm -hmm. her cancer and all that stuff. And the song, it just wasn't up to the other songs that he wrote and with everything else that we had on there. But fortunately, you know, when I sat down and we talked about it and I said, look, man, you know, I just made sure that I made him realize that, look, these two tunes that you wrote that I think are really good and they fit with everything else, they're great, man. And it's very difficult to think about, forget whether, you know, you wrote it for your mother or not, because this is bigger than that, you know? Mm -hmm. But he got it. In other words, I didn't have to, like, it wasn't like, oh, no, man, I'm going to put this on here, this is it. Because at one point, I was just like, okay, man, let's just do it. Whether or not it would end up having it on the album. Well, that, and that would have been a much bigger well, well, what, well, yes mm -hmm. and no. Because it could be that, like, when you hear everything in context, mm -hmm. and then you hear it, and, and unless you're just, you know, totally dense, uh, you say, well, this doesn't hold up to mm -hmm. these other things. I just hope that the, the artist has enough sense that when he gets down to it, that they're going to end up picking the things that make the most sense. But then know? again, I mean, a lot of that, again, it's back to that issue of trust, of having a trust level between you and a relationship of trust and honesty. And, you know, if it's a matter of needing to say to the artist, I know how sacred the song is to you, and frankly, I think it needs to be more special to make that depth of a connection to the listener. We need to approach it differently. Perhaps it doesn't work on this project. Maybe you should write some more in this tone, and maybe your next project will be a dedication to your mother. Who knows? It's directing yeah. it wherever it's going to right. go in terms of documenting today what's the story that's going to work today. So there are a million things we can talk about. This is a blast. We have both have worked with a lot of musicians mm -hmm. and engineers and in places and all that. And the trick, you know, you can say... This is a great bass player, and this is a great drummer, and this is a great piano player. Let's put them together. That doesn't always work. No, it's, no. it's who are the right match for this artist, who's yeah. going to give them the support that they need, who's played together before. And balancing Very out important. the idea of whether they've played together before or the fact that perhaps they haven't really played together before, and that's going to be magic. So well, like, I'll, give, I'll give you a great uh, uh, example of that. I've heard... Steve, Gad, and Christian McBride played together before, and they're like this, you mm -hmm. know. Another person that uh, is just great with Christian is Lewis Nash. Mm -hmm. You know, Lewis and Christian, man, they're mm -hmm. like this. So, man, if you got that combo, you know, and the thing is, like, when it comes to players, look, there are a lot of great bass players, a lot of great drummers, but then there are that special bass player, that special drummer, and, man, it's got to start, as far as I'm concerned, it all starts right there. Like, if you've ever done or thought about doing any replacing, the one thing I learned at one point was that it doesn't matter what you replace. You can replace just about anything. But if the drums ain't right, forget <laughs> it. You know, you can't, I don't give a shit what you do. You're not going to change how it is. That's pretty the drums got to be solid right right in there. Then you, If the drums are solid, you can do just about anything you want to do. So, you know, it's what's funny too, but there's that thing about them having cooked together. But the other pieces when you can put together, for example, uh, I did this record with Dana Stevens with Brad Meldow is involved in the project. And 
I've worked with Brad for a lot of years in the past and, and with the trio and worked a lot with him with Jorge Rossi and then with Jeff Ballard. And I knew that he had never played with Eric Harlan before. Well, Eric's one of my favorite drummers. I use him on every possible kind mm-hmm. of project and we're very close friends and he's just brilliant. I've never, yeah. He's, oh my God. But he and Brad had never played together with Larry Grenadine. <laughs> but Brad and Larry, they've had a trio together for 25 years. The rhythm section was Brad, Larry, and Eric, which had never played together before but always wanted to play together before. And we were able to document the sense of discovery of those musicians together. Mm -hmm. Now, that can be risky, but if you know the players and you know that they've wanted to play together and you know that with the artists that they're behind, they're going to be the right support for that artist, all of a sudden you're not only, you're documenting that sense of discovery, if it's the right musicians, can be really magical. But that wouldn't have worked if it weren't for the fact that Brad and Larry had that connection. And I had worked several times where I had, um, they hadn't really recorded together before some sessions we did together with Larry and Eric together. So I knew that they sounded like together. So mm-hmm. one plus one equals three. One plus one yeah. equals three. One plus one plus one has got to equal seven. You know, but that risk you might have with that. Well, you know, it was just I, I remembered what I wanted to say uh-huh. before, and that is, you know, sometimes artists they want a producer. But they really don't want a producer, <laughs> you know. And th- those are the words. Th- I've I've had several, if not several more than that, instances where that happens. And every time I say to myself, "Motherfucker," that like you know, this person doesn't really. It's like either they've been convinced they need a producer, or they say they want a producer, but they really don't want a producer. Mm-hmm. It's like they feel that they need to have the person there because they don't really necessarily listen to anything that the producer has. And the worst position that a producer could be in is to be in a room with an artist player or vocalist or whatever where you're there but they're not really listening to what you have to say mm-hmm. or tr- trusting whatever the, those elements are like i'll never forget i one of the first guys i'd rather it stay anonymous that i i signed it uh, impulse player and i thought you know this guy was really good, good player and you know see what he got on and everything so we go in and he gets in there with the rhythm section the next thing you know they're playing and I, I come out and I make a comment or I make a wrong it was like suddenly it was like I wasn't even there I thought well what the fuck this is <laughs> fucking crazy I mean why and that was it the fuck was off in other words like that point <laughs> I didn't do the next album and I, I don't think we kept him for more than a couple of mm-hmm. uh, uh, because like I realized right then and there okay just a person who thinks that they know what they're going to do mm-hmm. they're the only ones that have the answers here yeah they're the ones that are going to do it. And the twain will not meet other than this. And bye. Yeah. Because you're never going to get through. You know, there's no sense of mutual trust. There's, look, the only, as I think about artists and whether they're capable of producing themselves, one of the few guys I could think of right off the top of my head, and I'm sure there are a few others too, the only guy I could think of that is truly successful at producing his own records, and he hasn't necessarily produced all of his records. He's had some co-productions, but he's a great producer, and that's Paul Simon. Paul just, you know, well, whatever, with all, you know, he's just, he he knows what the fuck he wants, and he knows when it's right and it's not right. And every artist can't be both subjective and objective. You know, they yeah. just can't. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, when I think of that concept and when, you know, the idea of artists self-producing, I mean, part of the trick is there's a team involved no matter what. Like when you look at Paul, if not for Phil's involvement for some of the later records and earlier records, if not for, you know, what Gil would bring to the table or, or Eno at the last couple of records, like mm-hmm. there's always people there. At the end of the day, it's always Paul's decision. And a lot of times it's all Paul brings to the table all of his shit. There needs to be a process. And he's smart enough you know? to realize he needs something to bounce it yeah. off of, you know? Well, that's why we know when you look at 
Joni. Okay, some of my favorite records and the records in the movie the most have been records that basically Joni's produced herself. Now, right. did she produce Hegera and Mingus and Don Juan's record's daughter and those records that we love like all by herself? Well, no, it was a team. You know, you know, I think it was 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 well. I know at one point David Crosby was very very uh, uh, responsible for a lot of the things, and she started getting a little more adventuresome and everything. Henry Louis. Who I knew very well. Henry was a was a the engineer at Liberty when I first started working at Liberty mm-hmm. Records, and I became good friends with Henry. Henry had this beautiful personality and mm. just knew how to meld things together. And he was just a sweet guy, very intelligent, had good taste, all that stuff. But he was an engineer basically, mm-hmm. and she knew him. She trusted him. She could bounce things off of him. Mm-hmm. I think Henry was a big part yeah. of a lot of those records. You know, the thing about self-production, though, and if there's one thing artists very seldom are able to understand, it's that there's no one in the world that will hear the music the way you hear it. In other words, will not be able to identify the good, the bad, the story, mm-hmm. the way you do. Only you hear your music that way. It's like with Mike Brecker. After he plays a solo, every time it was like, oh, I suck. You know? Yeah. And it's yeah. like, no one else is going to hear it the way you hear it. One of the tricks about talking about whether or not it's can or can't self-produce, it's kind of like when we start the discussion talking about what does a producer do, what is self-production? See, the thing is that all those decisions that have to be made on all these different levels, it's a team effort no matter how you look at it. And if an artist is left on his own, you know, that's one of the tricks is if no one but the artist is going to hear the music the way the artist hears it, someone's got to translate that to an audience and you've got to have someone to bounce some of these issues mm-hmm. off of. And, you know, in making a record, there's, you know, the writing and the arranging and the recording and the engineering piece and the mixing. And, you know, if an artist is involved in all those factors... Where's their focus in terms of where it has to be, which is telling their story in their way and connecting mm-hmm. as a singular artist with their audience. So part of the issue that our job is there is to protect them from themselves, to protect yeah. the artist from going down roads that they don't need to. Trust yeah. me to take care of this so you can focus on what's yeah. more important. Yeah. That's going to be more important. Or if it's as a songwriter, it's like the weight isn't on you to write the whole record. Perhaps. Maybe it's these three songs and focus and be great on those three songs. Yeah. And then focus on telling a story about these songs that other people might recognize. You only have so many hours a day and so much consciousness to focus with. If you're able to really focus on absolutely what's most important, which is telling your story in your way, everything else you've got to admit is lower down the list of priorities. So how can you not want to hand some of that off to somebody? You know? Yeah. And well, trust that's, that's, who that's you can truly point. trust. That's the yeah. trick, is who is it you're going to truly trust? I think one this. of the elements that, that uh, a producer has to have also is, uh, I feel that like, like being, you know, I, I was a tenor player, and uh, I dabble in painting a little bit, just basically as a creative outlet, just mm-hmm. to, you know, I, I have no uh, sense of, uh, of, of it going any further. But the point is that I'm so fucking hard on myself, you know, I don't let myself get away with anything. Mm-hmm. It, it's something that's important to uh, to a producer to have as much a sense as to what's good or not good about yourself as, as about some someone else. Mm. You know, just being human, you have the ability to be able to bullshit yourself as to whether something is right or something right. I've never been able to bullshit myself. I mean, I dabble in these little pictures I do that are like this, you know, it's the size of a postcard. And I do, you know, God knows how many of them I do. And maybe I keep a handful out of 50. Or if I hear myself play, like, you know, I still have to pull out my horn every so often. I just go, boy, that's shit. You know, it's just, <laughs> you got to, so, and I forget my old lady saying, my wife saying, this, saying, boy, you're so hard on yourself. Well, you know, I don't have any control over that. 
I don't have any control over whether or not I'm hard on myself or yeah, easy yeah. on myself or bullshitting myself. This is it. If, if I hear it, I don't give a fuck if it's from me or if it's from someone else. It's either right or it isn't right. You know, it was, Ellington said, you know, there's only two kinds of music, good and bad. It's, it's either good or it's, it's not good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's funny. It's, I, I relate completely because, you know, as a trumpet player, I still have the horn sitting there. And because of what I do for a living, my ears are in really good shape because I do a lot of editing and a lot of tuning and a lot mm -hmm. of work in the mm -hmm. studio and a lot of detail. So my ears are in, in shape, much better shape than they ever were when I was playing full time. So when I pick up the horn, man, do I sound like shit to yeah. me. I mean, I sound like shit anyway, but especially to me. So, like, you know, people are like, yeah, man, you should pick up the horn. You, you were a good, really good lead player, man. You should play again. I'm like, no, what, what are you kidding? Like there was one session a few years ago that was like we needed someone to play a second trumpet. They're like, why don't you play, man? You should play. I'm like, there is no way that Tony Cadillac isn't going to blow me off the fucking stage. Right. Why would I put myself in that position? And if I think of it that way as it relates to everything else, being the guy that knows the right guy to call yeah. makes you a great producer. Right now, what I've dealt with a lot in terms of finding a career for myself as a producer is budgets are tighter. And I can't afford, like I used to work with James Farber all the time. James mm -hmm. and I were like you and Al. It was like a relationship that stuck, that worked. But the budgets got tighter and tighter. And I started working with Chris Allen, who's a fantastic engineer. And we developed a strong relationship, too. And he had assisted James on 100 dates. So he knows what I like. I know what he's going to do. I know what I need to double-check because we might do things differently. But in terms of mic choices, we talk about it and EQ things and all that. And I let him do his thing. And I know what needs to happen. Now, I've always drawn a certain line from a technical standpoint. I'm a semi-technically savvy guy to a certain degree, but I didn't want to become an engineer or a programmer because I knew I'd never be as good as the guys who actually do that for a living. I used to write a lot of horn charts when I was in college, but there was no way I was going to write a horn chart like Jerry Hay. You know, I was never going to write a chart like Gil. So why the fuck would I arrange when I can call these guys? And when it came to, to now being practical, I found what am I good at? that I can actually bring to the table. And for me, it's my ears and it's pitch and groove and tuning yeah, and right. detail. And then mostly it's That's song, it. casting, trust, encouragement, the psychological and the psychiatric side of what we do, the yeah. personalities and making a choice of what's going to be a comfort zone for an artist. When's the right time to pick them out of their comfort zone? But making sure they're surrounded mm -hmm. with a soft place to fall in terms of the players and the material and the setting. Well, I feel good about my ability to do that stuff. So I'm going to focus on that. And then, you know, obviously one of the big pieces to me, which is I work with a lot of vocal artists. So I, one of the things I hate seeing, and I know it's a different kind of music, but when I see that credit, vocal producer. Yeah. I'm like, if you didn't produce the vocal, what the fuck did you produce? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I said to myself, one thing I'm going to know, because I set with engineers a lot of times doing vocal comps and tuning vocals and stuff. And I said, you know, I have to take it upon myself that if there's one thing that I'm responsible for, it's going to be the artist's performance. So I really learned Pro Tools and Melodyne to a point where I feel that I can be trusted to only make the shit tell the story cleanly and emotionally in a connective way. But when it comes to pitch and timing and detail, I know that I will never suck any life out of anything because it's sacred to me. And handing it over to an engineer to do those kinds of delicate emotional things in a recording setting now where everything's extremely exposed. So if something doesn't feel exactly right, if you didn't do it yourself, you might not know what it is that makes it so it's not perfectly right. So I need to shepherd that 
and be entrusted with that mm -hmm. piece of it. Mm -hmm. But all the rest, I mean, I'm going to help. I'm going to pick mics, and I'll do it blindly. We'll do a vocal, and I'll say, put up an M49, put up a 251, put up a 47, and put it through two different mic trees. You know, I want to hear it through mm -hmm. the Neve and through the, through the Avalon. And don't tell me which one. Play me choices one through six. Mm -hmm. And I pick which one. Finally, after 10 times, every single time for a female vocal, I pick the M49 through the Neve. So now I just say, put the M49 through yeah. the Neve. Yeah. But for the most part, I don't want to muck my mind up See, with I've, I've the, been, the technical I've been, piece. I've, I've, been, I've been spoiled uh, with that. I got you know probably the world's greatest engineer when it comes to, <laughs> to, uh, to making things sound natural. I mean, it's not like I don't know when something ain't right. Right. But it's like I've been so accustomed to just having someone there where I don't have to think about anything but the music. Mm -hmm. I, I walk in that room, man. I know he's got it covered. So I, do you I just, not have any discussions about... Oh, we'll have discussions beforehand. Like, 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 even where things should be placed. Lines. Oh, sight yeah. Absolutely. No, no. All those things we'll talk about. Yeah. But I'm just talking about like, now I get down to, well, I want a 49 on this or I want to, you know, yeah, I want yeah. that. No, no. Though I own a couple of 67s. I've got a 67 vocal mic, which I've used on every Diana record, every Natalie Cole record. Every, yeah. every record that I made since 1980, I've used <laughs> the same mic. Oh, uh, well, I mean, no, wait, I should clarify that. There are some times when I haven't used them. Yeah. But because uh, I, don't, I don't have a 49, and there's some times when 49 just sounds better. Mm -hmm. But I don't say, okay, I want to use this on the, on that, on, on the guitar player, and oh. use that. On the, what, what are you hiring a, a brilliant engineer for? You know, I just, <laughs> I, I, that, that's his, yeah. his thing. To me, it's, it's more important that I get into where everybody's placed in the room for sight, all of that stuff, yes. But as far as um, what mics to use or whatever, I leave that to Al because he's just so, I mean, the guy's fucking brilliant. And it's so natural. I, I mean, I can't say that. I mean, I've, the eight, ten times I've had the honor of working with Al over the years, I mean, he's he's in L.A. and I can't afford him. I mean, yeah. it's like <laughs> they, yeah. the times I've worked together. I mean, I, he's one of my favorite human beings and he's such a brilliant engineer. And he's got that thing, like for me, that Farber has too, which is an ability to capture absolute pure music and, and the absolute sound of and, and something you know what, that's happening and, and, acoustically. And, and you know what these guys do, uh, guys of, of this caliber? I use James on, on several occasions. He's great. But in Al's case, I've never, there's never been a date where he doesn't, at one point prior to starting, when uh, we're running things down, he'll walk in the room. He wants to hear what these things sound like in the room. Absolutely. And then he goes back and he's trying to capture that. And the other thing about his sound is, so transparency about everything where, you know, you can hear the drums as clearly as the drums aren't being shadowed by anything. They're right out there, but they don't get in the way mm -hmm. because everything's just got this transparent, sort of like you could just stick your hand in there and there's all of this room. Now, part of this also is the way, not only the way he mics, but a couple of techniques he's got about, you know, where he places mics that are strictly for ambience. And then what he'll do is at one point, he'll start edging up the ambient mics and either he won't use it, or if he does, he'll just very, you know, slightly bring or or slowly bring up the ambience until he gets the sense of, of a room mm -hmm. that I love. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, if I have any control over it, I always want a room with high ceilings. Mm -hmm. Because it gives the music and the overtones a possibility of having air. Mm -hmm. uh, it's yeah. so important to, to be able to get that sense of things being open and airy and that's how Al's mixes sound they sound they just have this 
air about them. You know, they're uh, well. There's okay. so much more. There feels like there is so much space, and the more space there is, the easier it is to put specific things in places where they have their own place to hear them. Yeah, it becomes more transparent, and you can hear more detail. There's something great about the detail those mixes. To me, it probably goes back to the early. You know, being a guy who came up in the late fifties and in the sixties. Mike technique. When you know, oh, oh, Mike technique. It's incredible, Mike technique, and it's like I remember when I first heard Phil Spector records, and I said, "How the fuck do I hear all of that stuff? How can there yeah. be all of those?" Well, you know, in I was the same pretty, room, as and it, I hear as it, every one of them. As it turns out, I was privy to a lot of those things because I was friends with Phil when I was still a promotion man, actually. But I met him through this friend of mine, Bobby Dale, and we became friends. And I used to go to those dates. And I'd mm. just sit in the back and just check it out. <laughs> so what he would do, now, of course, in those days, it was more important because you only had three tracks. Mm -hmm. And then there was four tracks. And, of course, when you start combining and mixing down, especially when you had the fourth track, you would like say, okay, let me take this and this, and I'm going to put it over this. Not that he didn't do that. But what he would do, if he wanted weight, this is why when you look out and with a Phil Spencer date, you'll see, like, sometimes three guitars. Mm -hmm. And those three guitars are all playing the same thing because mm -hmm. he's giving it weight so that, like, they really had punch. You, well, you got like 30 guys, but they're not all playing this 30 different things. That's no, the trick about no, no. some of those grooves. You'll yeah. have three keyboard players, but you'll have a Rhodes and a Whirly and a piano, let's yeah. say. And the Rhodes and the Whirly are playing the exact same part. It right. just creates a weighted, specific power. It, it, it gives it weight. Yeah, yeah, it gives, it gives the... Uh, uh, of course, you know, once you get... Now you got, you know, 80, whatever it is that you've got on the Pro Tools, to the heart's delight, you know, you can just keep putting things on. But... There's a difference between having the same person play the same part and the same part with three different oh, guys playing it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's vibrations between, you know, the three. And because you're going to play it, your style and whatever it is, you're going to play it the same way. And it ends up coming out almost phasing one out and one another out, mm -hmm. you know. So, so, you know, you mentioned Creed uh, before. Now, Creed, Creed was a big influence on me. Creed's records were a big influence. Yep. I didn't meet Creed until 96, mm -hmm. 95 or 96. Mm -hmm. I met him once during the Benson trials when, when he sued Waters. Right. And it was just, hi, how are you? And then it wasn't until 95 or 96 I called and said something about, let's have lunch or something. And he, I think he said something like, why? <laughs> I said, well, look, man, I, I don't have any agenda here. It's just like, you know, I respect you highly. Yeah. And, I, and I, we've never met and uh, I'd like to have lunch. Yeah. So we had lunch and, and uh, I really, he was a big influence to me in the sense that I had listened to pop music all my life as a kid, and I think that I ended up really having this respect for him in the sense that, you know, he was trying to bring some of these artists into today. You know, the songs he picked, the pop songs he picked for jazz artists mm -hmm, to do, mm -hmm. he, he was sort of the first person to do that. He was the first Oh, to, yeah. Well, that's the funny thing. is, like he didn't when, give a shit in those days, as I think about it. It was even more difficult for him because the jazz police were even more. You know, in those days, it was like he committed a mortal sin. Yeah. Know? But I don't think he gave a shit about any of that. You know? No, and I think it's funny. Maybe Creed was a huge influence on me initially, certainly his records and by way of you, because his influence is very much there in your work. It's that bridge between as much as I love Blue Note records and Alfred Lyon and the difference between Blue Note and Prestige was basically a rehearsal. Yeah, because yeah, they were both they were always at, both at Rudy's, but that clean capturing in the moment jazz thing where you get the magic in the room and you find a way to facilitate magic happening, and then with Creed it was that on top of how do you translate that to people who don't understand why it's magic? 
Yeah. And yeah. how do you have it be a story that they might recognize that story? At the same time, without compromise. So you hear a record like mm-hmm. Freddie Skydive, which has this incredible shit on it, but then there's In a Mist, which is this big Spiderbeck thing that takes you to this whole other fucking world. And I don't know where the decisions were made. I was in the room about who did what and what would where. But when you look at the body of work that CTI created, at least from the A&M CTI productions up through the later part of, you know, when you get all the way up through the Freddie and the Mill Jackson and all that stuff. It was a sound and it was a, it was oh, a taste. Yeah. It was a point of view. And it was all about the artist connecting in an emotional way with the audience. Yeah. Although some of the records were a little over-sweetened, as we'll put it. I mean, a lot of those charts he had his guys. There was the Klaus stuff and the yeah. Sebesky stuff and the Bob James stuff and all that. But by and large... It was a sound that told the artist's story and supported the artist mm-hmm. in a great way. And that's not done enough these days. No. You no. Know? And also retaining the natural emotional connection artist and documenting that and the listener getting that. And whatever you add to it only supports that. That's what's wild about Klaus. When you hear Breezen and he'll write footballs when that's what's needed. But yeah. when you need something else, he knows exactly and, you know, what he's got to you know, he's one of the few arrangers that could actually write through what someone's playing and never get in their way. Mm. Whatever it is he's doing, it doesn't get in the way of what the artist is doing, but he's there, you know? Right. A lot of times, guys don't know how to be there and stay out of the way. Right. Uh, we could talk for another few hours, and I hope we can. No one else will have the privilege of getting to hear it, though, so screw him. But but it's great. I mean, I, there was there's a lot of other stuff to talk about. But I mean, it's an honor to hear a lot of this from you, and it's been terrific.